Hey, commit your life to Jesus. Get excited about living for Christ. And invariably, some jaded friend, some family member will approach you with the wrong advice. They'll pull you up under their arm and they'll say, Now, honey, be careful now. Don't get too spiritual. You can become so heavenly minded that you're no earthly good. Well, Colossians chapters 3 and 4 refute that notion. It proves that a true heavenly mindset elevates every area of life on earth. As Paul instructs us in verse 2, set your mind on things above, not on things on the earth. The Christian's true north is God's truth. In our day, when society values self-identification and individual autonomy, the Christian learns that the will of God is his foundation. The will of God revealed through the Word of God. We exalt biblical revelation over human reason. Our bearings are tied to the truth that's in Christ. Our focus is the Bible. Our momentum is heavenward. I like what C.S. Lewis once said, If you read history, you'll find that the Christians who did most for the present world were precisely those who thought most about the next. It is since Christians have largely ceased to think of the other world that they have become so ineffective in this one. The truth is, the more heavenly-minded you really are, the more earthly good you'll be prone to do. And this is what today's chapters teach us. Paul writes in Colossians chapter 3, verse 1, If then you were raised with Christ, seek those things which are above, where Christ is, Sitting at the right hand of God, set your mind on things above, not on things on the earth. The old comedian Jack Benny had the reputation of being a penny pincher. The joke is told of him walking down the street one day and getting accosted by a robber. The man stuck a gun in Jack's face and shouted, your money or your life? After a long pause, the robber shouted again, well, your money or your life? Benny replied, don't rush me, I'm thinking about it. (laughs) It's sad, but for many people, their money is their life. They're focused on material wealth and the happiness they hope that it'll buy. That's what they're focused on. Paul says, don't be shallow, don't be earthbound. Set your mind, direct your thoughts, and your desires Godward. Again, C.S. Lewis, I quote him, We are half-hearted creatures fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us. Like the ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he can't imagine what is meant by a holiday at the sea, we are far too easily pleased. Our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We settle for earthly stuff and for momentary happiness instead of reaching higher. Focusing on spiritual realities that bring eternal joy and true soul satisfaction. Verse 3 tells us, For you died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. And realize this truth. The Christian life is a hidden life. This is a profound truth that Christians themselves often overlook. The Christian life is a hidden life. 
You see, the world looks at the believer's life and doesn't understand us. They scoff. Oh, she's committed herself completely to Christ and she has nothing to show for it. And to a degree, the world is right. Our God is invisible. Our home is over the horizon, out of sight, off the map. Our greatest rewards are still future. Our Savior is seen only through eyes of faith. Our Helper, the Holy Spirit, is like the wind. He's spiritual rather than tangible. He's sensed rather than seen. Our treasures buried in our hearts, our source of joy and love and power and peace is accessed from the inside of our lives rather than from the outside. In short, our life is hidden with Christ in God. One day, the Pharisees approached Jesus. They said, hey, you talk so much about the kingdom of God, but where is this kingdom? Jesus answered them, the kingdom does not come with observation." Nor will they say, see here or see there. For indeed, the kingdom of God is within you. Our lives are hid with Christ in God. You and I are like an iceberg. The largest part of who we are and what we have is out of sight. It's below the surface. All the current world sees of our life is just the tip of the iceberg. Thus, we're laughed at. We're often ridiculed. We're misinterpreted. We've given our all to a kingdom that other folks can't see. But verse 4 tells us, When Christ who is our life appears, then you also will appear with Him in glory. The world will, may mock you for the moment, but one day the follower of Jesus is going to get the last laugh. When Jesus appears, one day visibly, And tangibly, the whole world will stand in awe. With jaws dropped and tongues tied, they'll stand in fear of His majesty. And suddenly, it'll all come into focus. Your life, what people thought was your strange devotion, will suddenly be explained. As you stand there with Christ, clothed in His glory, in that moment, the hidden life will be the envied. I read of an avid duck hunter. His name was Dean Gooden. When Dean died, his friend placed his ashes inside of a pair of two-foot-long mallard decoys. Well, his buddy made the statement, he has a good place here. He goes hunting with me. I even put bows on him at Christmas time. Well, it's pretty sad. If that's all you've got to look forward to when you die, folks who live like that will end up a quack one day. It's been planning that. (laughs) Christians live for eternity. Friends, it's true. Only after you've become heavenly minded do you understand of what's of value here below. And then he says in verse 5, Therefore put to death your members which are on the earth. You know, after his conversion to Christ, Paul was like a club under new ownership. And it was time to clear up all of the membership roles. And so he went down the role of his life. Every attitude, every habit, every activity that once had hung around, he denied enrollment to members that no longer belonged. And this is what we should do. Have you purged your character role of the members that Jesus frowns on? And first on the list 
is fornication. What is fornication? Fornication is sex outside of marriage. The Greek word is pornea. It's a catch-all phrase. And you recognize that word pornea. We get our word pornography from that word. It's a catch-all phrase for all kinds of illicit sex. Pornography and incest and homosexuality and adultery and shacking up and hooking up and friends with benefits and polyamorous arrangements. All sex outside of heterosexual marriage is fornication. You know, the buzzword in today's society is safe sex. If it's safe sex, it's okay, according to the world. But God's word says, save sex. God designed human sexuality for a husband and a wife. Sex before or outside of marriage isn't blessed by God. It might seem right to you, but God doesn't approve Often I hear couples justify living together by saying they just want to take it out for a test drive before they buy. Well, that test drive can become a demolition derby. By the time you're done test driving, a relationship can be wrecked and can no longer be running properly. Recently I saw research that reported there's a 50% greater chance of divorce for couples who live together before marriage than for couples who don't. 50%. If you want a solid marriage, get your instructions from above. God says, put to death fornication, uncleanness, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, that is envy, which is idolatry. Notice craving somebody else's stuff is considered by God a modern day form of idolatry. You can turn an item into an idol if you're not careful. He continues, because of these things, the wrath of God is coming upon the sons of disobedience, in which you yourselves once walked when you lived in them. Hey, once we were on a death march to hell. But in Christ now, we've broken ranks. We're now marching to a different drummer. We're getting in step with heaven, and this pleases God. And thus, verse 8, now you yourselves are to put off all these And in the next few verses, Paul is going to teach us how to dress for success. Spiritually speaking, that is. I'm sure you've probably noticed, but I'm not much of a clothes horse. In fact, I still have shirts I bought when Jimmy Carter was president. And every so often, one of those shirts disappears from my closet. I go on a mad, frantic search. Where did my shirt go? It's as if the fashion police put out a hit on that shirt. It just vanishes with no leads. Well, the Holy Spirit, unlike my wife, expects us to clean out our own closets. As a Christian, you are a new you. But a new you needs a new wardrobe. And there are attitudes that you need to put off and some attitudes you need to put on. And he starts with the old clothes that we need to discard first. Anger. Anger. The Greek word implies a simmering, stewing, festering kind of anger that leads to further sin. Put it off. Paul wrote to the Ephesians, be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your wrath. 
Second on the list of off attitudes is wrath. The Greek word is thumos, a hot, volcanic anger. If you have an explosive temper, learn to diffuse it. Put it off. As well as malice, that is taking pleasure in someone else's misfortune. Don't, don't you feel too happy about what's going on at Georgia Tech? Don't you feel too happy about their football program? Don't take pleasure in someone else's misfortune. Blasphemy, contempt for God or the things of God, put it off. Filthy language out of your mouth. Any demeaning or defiling verbiage, put it off. Then in verse 9, do not lie to one another. You remember that couple in Acts chapter 5 that dropped dead when they lied to Peter and the Holy Spirit? God dealt with lying, lying and hypocrisy so severely in the early church because He knew there could be no meaningful fellowship if there wasn't a truthfulness and an honesty among the members. The same kind of atmosphere is needed today in our fractured world if we're going to have true unity there has to be honesty among us he says do not lie since you have put off the old man with his deeds but putting off is only half the challenge for verse 10 tells us that we should also put on the new man who is renewed in knowledge according to the image of him who created him again here's how you live the Christian life you put off and you put on Colossians 2 taught us that spiritually, in the inner person, we are complete in Christ. We have all that we need from God in Christ. But the outer man still has some issues, residual habits, lingering tendencies, formerly learned reactions. These things can betray our identity in Christ, and thus it's our job to put off and to put on. We need to reprogram our thoughts and develop new patterns and habits in our lives. I've got to see myself in Christ and learn to live accordingly. One year my son Mac played soccer and on his team were two children with the same name, Casey. One of the Casey's was a little boy and the other Casey was a little girl. And in the first game, the coach barked instructions to Casey. But there was confusion. Which Casey did he mean? And so it didn't take long for this smart coach to solve the problem. He started shouting, Pass it, Casey boy! Clear it, Casey girl! The smart coach differentiated the two Casey's by calling out Casey boy or Casey girl. And this is how you win in the Christian life. You've got to differentiate between the new me and the old me. When temptation raises its ugly head and the world calls out for the old me, I've got to remember that I'm not Sandy old, I'm Sandy new. Sandy old was crucified with Christ. Sandy new has been transformed. And it's when we officialize this identity in our minds that we forsake the old and we learn to synchronize our lives with the new. For we're told in verse 11, that in Christ there is neither Greek nor Jew, circumcised nor uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave nor free, but Christ is all and in all. You remember the false teachers in Colossae, they saw themselves as spiritual elitists. Supposedly they had a special knowledge or a gnosis, as they called it, that common folks lacked. But Paul assures the Colossians that in Christ there is no such thing as spiritual exclusivity. 
that in Christ all distinctions, racial, Jews and Gentiles, social, slaves or frees, cultural, circumcised nor uncircumcised. There are all of the barriers have been removed in Christ Jesus. As Christians, we're all one. There's level ground at the foot of the cross. Someone has said that the only level ground in all the world is at the foot of the cross. We're all of equal value before God. Therefore, as the elect of God, holy and beloved, notice Paul refers to all believers as elect of God. Elect means chosen by God, chosen by His grace. Again, there's no elite level here. Nothing elite with God. No knowledge you need to learn. No wisdom you need to develop. No deed you need to do. No secret society you need to join. If you're in Christ, God considers you special, holy, and beloved. God has no elite, only elect. And again, since you're the elect of God, chosen by God, dress like it. He says, put on tender mercies, kindness, humility, meekness, long-suffering. We discussed what attitudes to put off. Now here are the attitudes to put on. Hey, hey, do you know that Christianity has a dress code? You should. God cares about what you wear to church. Don't think Calvary Chapel, Stone Mountain is some kind of come-as-you-are place. You know, as a child, my parents told me that God deserves my very best. And so whenever we went to church, they put me in a white dress shirt that I didn't dare get dirty, that had a stiff collar that quite frankly felt like a hangman's noose, a choking little tie, itchy pants, rigid shoes made for the devil himself. It all made a young boy not want to go to church, trust me. Well, I still believe that Christians should wear their very best to church. But God could care less about the clothes that you wear. That's not what is meant by best. No, God cares about our attitudes, our habits, our attitudes toward one another. When you come to church, God wants you to dress up in your very best attitudes and character and conduct. He says, put on tender mercies, compassion. Empathy for one another. And kindness. I love Mark Twain's quote. He said of an acquaintance, he said he was a good man in the worst sort of way. (laughs) In other words, a person can be moral and religious and at the same time be hypocritical and harsh and unkind. We need to be both loving and good at the same time. Put on tender mercies, kindness, humility, meekness. Meekness is strength under control. This is what makes for a gracious winner. Meekness doesn't rub it in. Lord, forgive me about that crack about Georgia Tech. <laughs> this isn't the player who gets ostracized or, or the player who, who gets on the field and gets penalized for 15 yards for excessive celebration. That's not meekness. Excessive celebration. Meekness never taught. Meekness's goal is to win the person, not just win the game. Strength under control. And put on long-suffering, for that is patience. It's been said patience is the virtue you admire in the driver behind you and despise in the driver ahead of you. 
For us, patience is the ability to wait on God to move. Verse 13, bearing with one another and forgiving one another. For if anyone has a complaint against another, even as Christ forgave you, so you also must do. You should treat others the way Jesus treats you. But above all these things, put on love, which is the bond of perfection. When a Christian dresses up in love, he becomes a good man in the best sort of way. And then verse 15. And let the peace of God rule in your hearts, to which also you were called in one body, and be thankful. Now the Greek word translated rule was akin to the judge at an athletic competition. In other words, the umpire. And Paul is saying that when a life decision is too close for you to call, when it's a bang, bang choice, let the peace of God make that call. In other words, if it feels biblical, if it feels godly to you, then safe. But if you're uneasy about it, even if you can't quite put your finger on it, then punch it out. Don't do it. The problem, though, with this peace approach is, in, in terms of learning God's will, is its subjectivity. At times, our own hearts can get deceived, can't they? So along with God's peace umpiring our hearts, we'll never go wrong with verse 16. For let the word of Christ dwell in you richly in all wisdom. At the peace of God and then the word of God. Through both we learn the will of God. Say some guy comes up to me and says, Oh, Pastor Sandy, I've been praying about it for some time now. And God has finally given me a peace about divorcing that wife of mine. Wait a minute. Your peace is a piece of garbage. It's a deception. It's a work of the devil. God isn't going to give you a peace about something that he's forbidden in his word. That's why the word of Christ should dwell in our hearts. Go through the word. Let the word go through you. Let God's word dwell in you richly and fully and comprehensively. Altering your attitudes and shaping your values and challenging your assumptions and changing your perspectives. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly and you'll walk in the will of God. And then Paul adds teaching and admonishing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with grace in your hearts to the Lord. Hey, look for the peace of God, learn the word of God, sing the praises of God, and you'll live smack dab in the will of God. Verse 17, in whatever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Notice in word or in deed. That's a pretty all-encompassing ethic, isn't it? We should run every thought, every desire, every attitude, every comment, every action, every reaction through the filter, what would Jesus do? Now, as we said from the outset, the more heavenly-minded you are, the more good you'll do here on this earth. And in the next few verses, Paul describes how a heavenly perspective will affect human relationships. And he begins with marriage, verse 18. Wives, submit to your own husbands as is fitting in the Lord. The Bible teaches that biblical marriage is an ordered 
equality. The man and the woman are equal in terms of value, but they are distinct in the roles that God has assigned to each. God calls the wife to submit. The word means to arrange her life around the man. And then he calls the man to be her loving leader. This is wisdom from above. This is a heavenly mindset. Of course, a wife should never be dominated by her husband. A married couple should complement each other. Marriage is like a tango. It's like a dance. A husband leads. But hopefully, guys, you're not all feet. You don't step on your wife's toes and do her harm. Hopefully, the two of you learn to dance together and create something beautiful. And notice there are two exceptions to the wife's submission. First, a wife submits to her own husband, not to husbands in general. Biblical submission is a role that she plays in the context of marriage and church, not in her interactions with society at large. There, she's free to take authority on the job, in government, all kinds of places. And then second, she's to submit as is fitting in the Lord. That means that under no obligation is she to obey her husband if his demand is immoral or illegal or unbiblical. It should be in the Lord she's to be submissive. A wife's primary obligation is to obey God. And if she's forced to choose between God and her hubby, then she sides with God. Verse 19, husbands, love your wives and do not be bitter toward them. A husband's job is to take initiative. Men, you are the leader in your family. And you won't initiate if you get bitter. See, when your focus is on how you've been harmed or what's not your fault, it grinds initiative to a stop. Oh, I'm not apologizing until she apologizes. That's bitterness, not leadership, not initiative. That's the hardening of the spiritual arteries is what that is. And it causes a deadlock. If bitterness sets in, wedlock becomes a deadlock. And as the leader of the family, the husband's job is to prevent the deadlocks. Spiritually speaking, the man needs to be the adult in the room. Guys, you're the one that should be looking past her faults. Your eye should be on her healing, not on your one-uppance. You're keeping open lines of communication. Jesus knows grace and so do you and you're showing grace to your wife. Leadership is about initiative, not bitterness. This is a husband's role. And in verse 20, children, obey your parents in all things. For this is well-pleasing to the Lord. Fathers, do not provoke your children lest they become discouraged. Notice the reciprocal responsibilities in the Christian home. The obedience of children was nothing new for Jews and Romans. But for parents to avoid needlessly agitating and frustrating their kids, this was revolutionary. Roman domestic law was based on a principle of patria potestis, or the power of the father. Did you know that a Roman dad could do whatever he wanted with his kids? 
He could sell them. He could kill them. He could enslave them. They were considered his property legally. Some of you who were rebellious teenagers growing up, you should be thankful you grew up in the Christian era rather than in ancient Rome. No telling where you'd be today. In Christianity, parents are to love their children. God wants kids to obey their parents, certainly. Your parents are smarter than you think they are, and they probably care about you. But parents should treat their kids with kid gloves. Don't aggravate them. Don't frustrate them. Be a cheerleader, not a critic. And then verse 22, bond servants, that is, employees, we could, we could say. Obey in all things your masters according to the flesh, or your employers. Not with eye service as men pleasers, but in sincerity of heart, fearing God. And we've all seen this type of behavior, have we not? An employer or an employee works only when his boss is watching? That's eye service as a men pleaser. You know people like that. Hopefully you're not one of those people. Hey, we should never forget as Christians, our boss is always watching us. When a Christian goes to work, you're not working for the company. You're working for the Lord. How you do your job is a big part of your witness. For whatever you do, do it heartily as to the Lord and not to men. Knowing that from the Lord you will receive the reward of the inheritance for you serve the Lord Jesus. Right now, your earthly boss signs your paycheck. But the check that counts, your eternal reward, is going to have God's signature at the bottom. Once a businessman, he saw Mother Teresa washing the open sores and bandaging the pus-filled wounds of Calcutta's sick. He saw her and he remarked, he said, I wouldn't do that for a million dollars. Teresa replied, neither would I. She too was looking for an eternal reward, not an earthly reward. An eternal reward from God. He says, but he who does wrong will be repaid for what he has done. And there is no partiality. God is just. He's going to be fair with both his paychecks and with his punishments. Chapter 4. Masters, give your bondservants what is just and fair, knowing that you also have a master in heaven. Every boss on earth should remember that he or she has a boss in heaven. And remember, bosses, your boss wasn't bossy, was he? Jesus was a servant. He lived humbly. He washed the feet of his disciples. He refused to throw his weight around or bully other people. He respected folks. And this is how a Christian employer should behave. He should love and serve his employees. If you're a boss and you're complaining about the lack of loyalty from your employees, ask yourself, what reasons have you given them to be loyal? Treat them as you would want to be treated and see if they don't work harder for you. And then verse 2, continue earnestly in prayer, being vigilant in it with thanksgiving. Don't just pray once and quit praying. Persevere. Continue passionately in your prayer. And Paul says, while you're praying, verse 3, he says this to the Colossians. Pray also for us that God would open to us a door for the word to speak the mystery of Christ for which I am also in chains. Now recall, where is Paul? 
He's in prison. He's in prison in Rome. And as you might expect, he requests prayer. But rather than pray for him to get out, he asks the Colossians to pray that the word of God will get out. Paul isn't concerned about himself. He's concerned about the advancement of the gospel. And he adds in verse 4, And that I may make it manifest as I ought to speak. Paul doesn't desire charity. He desires clarity. He wants to be effective and clear in his witness for Jesus. And then in verse 5 he says, Walk in wisdom toward those who are outside, redeeming the time. I hope you know that somewhere, right now, there's a clock ticking. It's posting the days and the hours and the minutes and the seconds that you have left until you die and meet your God. How sobering would it be if you got a glimpse of that clock and realized the time that you have left? Would it change the way you lived your life? How would it change it? Surely we'd want to gather up every stray second and redeem the time. Make that time count. We should make every word count as well. For in verse 6 it says, Let your speech always be with grace, seasoned with salt, that you may know how you ought to answer each one. You know, before you became a Christian, I know some of you guys, you, you bellied up to the bar. You go into the bar all the time. You belly up to the bar. And you'd always notice that the bartender had these little bowls of peanuts and bowls of pretzels out there in front of And you thought he was just being nice to you. Bars aren't nice to you. They know that salt makes you thirsty. So if they can keep you munching the peanuts and the pretzels, you'll keep buying drinks and spending your money. That's what they were after. But it's this thirst-producing quality of salt that should characterize a Christian speech. As a Christian, do you realize, I can sprinkle into my conversations biblical truths and spiritual insights and thought-provoking statements and reflections about God, even praises of God, that will cause a thirst in the life of the person to whom I'm talking to. In, in natural, you don't have to do, go far. You don't have to become stilted and, and strange in this kind of behavior. But in natural ways, you, you can let the person that you are speaking to, even if it's about business or something else, you can still let them know that Jesus is active in your life and that he wants to be active in theirs. We can use casual conversations to make folks thirsty for Christ. Use your speech wisely. Well, Paul closes the letter now to the Colossians with some personal correspondence. You know, one thing about Paul, he was not only a great soul winner, he was also a great friend maker. It's been said, I went out to find a friend, but could not find one there. I went out to be a friend, and friends were everywhere. I think Paul had so many friends because he was a good friend to have. And part of being a good friend is taking time to communicate. And beginning in verse 7, Paul addresses his pals, Tychicus, a beloved brother, faithful minister, and fellow servant in the Lord, will tell you all the news about me. I am sending him to you for this very purpose, that he may know your circumstances and comfort your hearts. Tychicus was Paul's mailman. 
he was delivering this letter to the Colossians. And Paul is asking him to bring back a report of their welfare. Tychicus will come with Onesimus, a faithful and beloved brother who is one of you. They will make known to you all things which are happening here. And there's a wonderful story wrapped up in Onesimus that we'll get to in Paul's letter to Philemon. I can't spill the beans now. Aristarchus, my fellow prisoner, greets you with Mark, the cousin of Barnabas, about whom you received instructions. If he comes to you, welcome him. And this is a wonderful gesture, especially when you learn the backstory. In Acts chapter 15, after their missionary endeavor in Galatia, Paul and Barnabas parted company. Oh, it was bad. It was an apostolic split. It was caused over a disagreement over Barnabas' cousin Mark. For some reason, on their first venture, Mark had abandoned them in midstream. So when they started planning a second missionary journey, Paul balked at bringing Mark again. As it turned out, Paul replaced Barnabas with Silas. And Barnabas teamed up with Mark. It wasn't the last time hard feelings broke up church leaders. And yet here, notice, here, years later now, as Paul writes to the Colossians, he mentions Mark is with him. Whatever ill feelings had existed have now been resolved. Mark and Paul have been reunited in Rome and Mark sends his greetings to the Colossians. I think that's wonderful. In fact, Paul will later write to Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 11. And he says of Mark, he is useful to me for ministry. It's comforting to me to know that Paul and Mark were not so spiritual that they didn't have a blow up or a fallout. And it's also comforting to know that they were spiritual enough to get over it and to forgive each other and be reunited. Also with Paul was Jesus who is called Justice. And, and you should know that the surname Jesus was actually a common Jewish name in the first century. This is why the Gospels always spoke of the Messiah as Jesus of Nazareth. It differentiated him from the other Jesuses, like this one called Justice. You know, it's interesting, Paul, a Jewish rabbi, he only had three Jewish friends that stood with him to the end. He says of Aristarchus, Mark, and Jesus... These are my only fellow workers for the kingdom of God who are of the circumcision that is Jewish that have proved to be a comfort to me. And then verse 12, Epaphras, who is one of you. He was a Colossian. Remember, he was the pastor of the church in Colossae. He was a bondservant of Christ. Greet you, always laboring fervently for you in prayers that you may stand perfect and complete in all the will of God. For I bear him witness that he has a great zeal for you. What a blessing it is to have a pastor who prays for you and has a great zeal for you, who loves his people. Epaphras was the leader of the church at Colossae, and he was a caring pastor. He, he rushed to Paul with news of this brewing heresy in the church, and he had been praying for the Colossians. And notice how Paul describes his prayer life. He says, always laboring fervently in prayer. When was the last time you labored in prayer? When was the last time you prayed and really worked at it? Have you ever prayed yourself into a lather? Passionately interceding for other people? Epaphras did. Prayed for the Colossians. And 
the two sister churches of Colossae in the neighboring cities and those who are in Laodicea and those in Hierapolis. And then he says, Luke, the beloved physician, and Demas greet you. Here we learn that Luke was not only an historian and the author of the third gospel, but he was also a medical doctor. Perhaps he was Paul's personal physician. In Paul's letter to the Galatians, Paul spoke of a reoccurring eye problem. Luke may have traveled with Paul to treat him whenever his illness became active. Paul also mentions a man named Demas. Sadly, we'll learn later that when the going got rough, Demas got going. He abandoned Paul and the cause of Christ. Paul says later that he loved this world more than Jesus. And then verse 15, Greet the brethren who are in Laodicea and Nymphos and the church that is in his house. Note the church in Laodicea met in a house. It wasn't until the third century, 300 years, that churches started meeting in designated buildings. For the first three centuries of church history, Christians fellowship in homes. Here, Nymphus was either a pastor or a host, or perhaps both, of the church in Laodicea. Later, in Revelation 3, Jesus himself will have a stern warning for the Laodiceans. Now, when this epistle is read among you, see that it is read also in the church of the Laodiceans, and that you likewise read the epistle from Laodicea. Paul wanted his letters shared among the churches. And today, isn't it interesting, 2,000 years later, we're still sharing Paul's letters. Today, the church at Stone Mountain is reading and applying Paul's letter to the Colossians. The New Testament was meant to apply universally to all churches at all times. And here the Laodiceans are encouraged to read the letter to Colossae. And the Colossians are to read the letter to the Laodiceans. Which brings up a question. Where is Paul's letter to the Laodiceans? Answer, buried under the sands of time. We no longer possess it. And then verse 17. And say to Archippus, take heed to the ministry you have received in the Lord that you may fulfill it. We'll also meet Archippus again with Onesimus when we study Paul's letter to Philemon. It's a wonderful story. I can't wait to tell it to you. But you'll have to wait. And then Paul ends, the sal- this salutation by my own hand, Paul. It was Paul's custom to dictate his letters to a stenographer. And then at the close of the dictation, he would take the quill and he would sign the letter himself as a seal of its authenticity. But this time, as he reaches for the quill to sign his name, the chains around his wrists rattle and clang. Paul is reminded of his imprisonment for the cause of Christ. And so he closes his letter with a heartfelt request. Remember my chains. Grace be with you. Amen. And there we have Paul's letter to the Colossians.